Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zenki Deloroshi, the guiding teacher here at the Boulder Zen Center in Boulder, Colorado. My name is Bryant. I'm a resident here at BZC. There's something new we're doing that I want to tell you about. If you don't already know this, these talks are recorded live in our Zendo twice a month on Saturday mornings. We just recently opened up the Center for in-person Dharma Talks, and we will also continue to broadcast them live over Zoom, as we've done throughout the past year. To give you an overview of what happens here on Saturday mornings, we begin with a meditation period in our Zendo, that's the meditation hall, at 9 a.m., followed by the talk. Then we have a short break before coming back together for a Q&A session where anyone can ask a question, and that all wraps up around 11.30. After that, and this is something brand new we're offering, Anyone who wants to can stick around for a short work period where we do some cleaning and basic maintenance around the property for about 45 minutes, and then we sit down together and have a social lunch. Last week was the first time we've done this, and it was really wonderful to work and eat together and share this beautiful community space that we have here on Arapahoe Avenue in Boulder. So I just wanted to extend the invitation to you listening to this podcast to join us on a Saturday morning. Send me an email if you're interested or if you have any questions. Now we'll get to this week's talk. Here's Zenki Roshi. Hi. Welcome. Welcome back to the Zendo. And hello. Yeah, zoom triangles, no, rectangles. Um, I ask myself, you know, who am I speaking to? And, um, you know, every two weeks, who am I speaking to? And um, I make a kind of assumption. I make an assumption that I'm speaking to... You, people, who um, have already established a regular practice. And um, I may be wrong. You know, maybe you're struggling with establishing a, a regular practice. And that's fine. This is not something I'm criticizing. It's like, it's then that's just where you are. And, and you're here to get some instruction and inspiration and you're trying to figure out to establish a regular practice in your life, which is difficult to do. I, I, I really think it's difficult to do. I mean, that's why I spent, um, I don't know, I'm just speaking roughly 20 years in a monastery because it's easier that way. <laughs> but certain things that I'm bringing up are not going to make experiential sense or not yet if you don't have a regular practice. So it's, it's, it's really essential. It's really essential. And there may be different reasons for why you have a regular practice or don't have a regular practice. Now, one reason for not having a regular practice is that you're not intimate enough with your suffering. 
you know, because we're all human beings, I also make the assumption that we all suffer. Buddhism calls this dukkha, and dukkha is translated as suffering, but it really means dissatisfaction and disease and, you know, your ordinary garden variety grumpiness with which you walk through life, you know, like all, all that. Or a real activation, you know, something happens and you get activated and you get agitated and upset and, you know. It's, I call it, this is the first noble truth. There is suffering, but the instruction that we have to apply to this is to be intimate with it. Like, you, more or less consciously, you may have the thought like, well, if I arrange my life differently, it's going to go away. Maybe if, you know, I have a different partner or I make more money or I move to a different city or, you know, I work through some issues or I change my habits, then actually that suffering is going to go away and then I'm fine. <clears throat> yeah, maybe, you know, you, you'll see. <clears throat> And another reason to not have a regular practice is to maybe to not have the faith yet to entrust yourself to the teaching and to the method of practice. And you, because you don't quite believe that it's really going to work. And maybe you've tried for a while, or you've tried some, and it's not really making a difference. <laughs> And that's very understandable because I think even with regular diligent practice, it it really takes some time. <laughs> okay, so actually there's some element of faith involved here. It's like to entrust yourself to the method. So in the last couple of talks you haven't listened to them and you want to, they're on our podcast, I've been talking about what I call modalities of mind. And um, then in the most recent talk, I I said, well, let's let me just make two rough categories. You know, I had listed modalities of mind, you know, like discursive thinking and applied thinking and Attentional consciousness, all fancy words. <clears throat> and then I thought, okay, well, let's just be really rough and say there is sensation and there is interpretation. Two categories of how the mind functions. You can put different words there too. They're just pointing to experiential realms. Instead of interpretation, you could say thought. And under sensation, I group, you know, seeing and hearing. But actually, what is seen? What is heard? What is tasted? What is smelled? What is, what is touched? What you feel in the region of your own body. What 
we can also bring into that actually certain manifestations of thought, but it's sort of like a memory that pops up. It's like a sensation. It just comes. You can then think about it, but actually that initial memory that comes up is just like a sensation. And it, Buddhism does that. It treats the mind also as a sense. Okay, like that. That's sensation. And then there is interpretation or thought or cognition. Or, and there's different modalities of, of that which you can notice in your, in your day-to-day life. There's discursive thinking when you sit down for meditation and your mind is just kind of rambling thoughts. Monkey mind, you know? Mm-hmm. There's the kind of thinking that you apply when you are working on a certain task. There is narrative thinking. You're telling yourself a story. There's like you're rehearsing a conversation. You are uh, there's judgmental thinking. You're, you know, putting yourself down or someone else. The initial method of practice is to disentangle thinking or interpretation from sensation. They are, in an untrained mind, they are entangled. It's really simple. There's there's these instructions that you've heard, or a variety of them that you've heard. There's like, when you notice your attention on your discursive thinking, then bring it to the sensations of breathing. Every time you notice that your mind is wandering, I'm saying it in a different way, go back to your breath. Or in, in, in our school, in Soto Zen, there is this instruction just to sit. And I, I'm translating it as allowing your sensations to be exactly what they are at this time. No comment, no, no interest in changing them. You just sit with them. You just allow them to be exactly what they are. You allow your posture to be there. You allow your breath to be there. You allow your proprioceptive sensations, what you feel in your body, to be there. You allow sounds to be there. You allow what you see to be there. No interference. This is also a way of disentangling sensation from thinking. There's not inviting your thoughts to tea. That's disentangling sensation from thinking. There's uh, um, thinking, not thinking. So... You hear this. It's being, if you listen to the Dharma, you hear this. And now the question is, are you going to 
practice it with some regularity and diligence. Even on your cushion, because it can be hard to sit for 30, 40 minutes, um, you can fall asleep or just hate it <laughs> or get really bored or whatever your method of resisting is. Um, Take some effort, you know, this is just, this is just being said for centuries, right? Take some effort to actually do this, to do this disentangling of attention. Uh, well, let me, jumping ahead, sensation, um, disentangling of sensation from thinking. There's, uh, there, you can do it in a playful way too, you know. Um, Bekarashi, uh, my teacher, has suggested, you know, practices that he made up, like peeling the labels off of things, right? Like you walk around and then you peel the label off. Thought comes, maybe just names of things, and you notice that and then you just peel it off. So if you see a tree, this happens, like this wonderful tree in our front yard. People say, what kind of tree is it? The desire of the mind to really know what kind of tree that is. It's actually wonderful to know the names of trees and birds and plants. Um, it kind of creates a certain relationship with them rather than not knowing them. It's like, oh, yeah, well, that planned. I don't care. Um, so I'm not just... But anyway, notice that. Like your desire to name things and then the intention you could hold to refrain from that. Now, when you refrain, you may discover things. You may just see the way the bark in this tree, when you look at it later, um how the texture of the bark. It's like, when I looked at the tree as labeled, I didn't see the bark. Now that I pull the label off, I see the bark. Or maybe I see the way the sun is making light and shadow in the canopy of the tree, and so forth. So it's quite delightful, actually, to free the mind from its from its ingrained habit to label, to name, to think about, because there's this directness that comes. It's almost like when you, when you haven't developed this skill sufficiently, it feels like, can the mind really do this? Can I, can I just be in the world and not think about stuff? Yes, you can. But it takes practice. And it doesn't mean like it's going to happen 24-7. It's more like there is that freedom that arises that the mind can re actually refrain from thinking about. And it is a skill, and you need to practice it. Just like you would with any other skill. It's just the question, do you really believe that it's worth something? <clears throat>
Recently, I talked to a wise friend. And I was telling a story about, you know, a certain situation in my life and feelings that I have about it. And, you know, it's just telling the story. It was actually, I was kind of proud of myself, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really complaining. I wasn't, you know, too judgmental. I was just reporting what was going on, my feelings, and the situation, and the people who are involved with it, and so forth. <clears throat> and then um, my friend said, well, maybe this is just the intensity of your own life. Okay. I heard that. And it kind of, it really hit me. It's like, wow. That, that is wise. So, what I'm trying to say is, you can play with trees and say like, Oh, you know, I'm not going to label that tree. Um, and then I see the bark or the birds that are enjoying themselves in the tree. And that's wonderful. But when it comes to your own suffering, really what's at stake, and there's lots of things, but what, what we mostly, I think, get tight around and wound up about is an intensity that we feel in our own body. So as I was speaking to my friend, I was speaking from that intensity, like there was something that was bothering me. And even though I wasn't too, you know, assigning too much blame or being actually that complaining, you know, my friend picked up on it and it's like, what? Maybe this is just the intensity of your own life. Okay, so take this phrase, but dig a little deeper and notice there is an encouragement there to actually not label the intensity of my own life or or, or say something about it. Like, it's because of this situation that shouldn't be that way. Or it's because of this person who really should be different. Like, if they fulfilled my expectations... I wouldn't feel this. This is always implied. Even when we just speak normally about issues in our life. But what if it's just the intensity of my life? And I just let it be there. Now the tree outside in the courtyard isn't really bothering me. <laughs> it's not it's not a problem. Not right now, in the fall, when all the leaves fall, and then then it's a problem. Then I'll complain. You tree. Creating so much work for us. But this intensity that arises in me, for all sorts of reasons, this really is a problem. 
or is it? Maybe it is less of a problem than we think. Maybe if you if you develop the skill of not um, of de develop the skill of disentangling thought from sensation, there can be a mind that just lets that intensity be there. Life is always kind of intense. You know, sometimes it's more relaxed, but then the relaxation is kind of intense too. You know, maybe it's, it's, it's so joyfully intense. It's like, <clears throat> or you enjoy it for a while and then you're like, so what, what do I do now? Like, maybe I should do something meaningful. <clears throat> yeah, so it's just, just being alive is, um, is intense. So I, I, I'm suggesting to really commit yourself to a practice that allows you to let sensation be just what it is. There is an enjoyment that comes from it. You will listen to music differently. There is, there are ethical implications because you'll be, you'll be able to, um, receive another person without immediately having to comment on it. And then there is this very intimate dimension of, of, of getting a handle on your own suffering, which is, I am able and willing to receive the intensity of life as my own without complaining about it, without assigning blame. And now from that place in which I receive and accept this intensity, I go forth with a kind of practical attitude. Because, yes, you may want to do something about that intensity. But not in this reactive way, <clears throat> but in a practical way. So there's lots, uh, all I'm saying right now is like there is a lot implied here. Now, we can all do this already. But it may not be very stable. You can already, for a moment, you know, hear this and just hear it. Or feel your body and just feel, just feel it. Or look at a tree and so forth. But, like I said, it may not be very stable. 
Okay, you've heard that, uh, I, I assume, again, I make this assumption, you've heard that, you know, Buddhism talks about the self and no self, and this can be very confusing. I, for years, I just didn't, I just didn't get it. Like, what, what is, what is being said? <laughs> Why is it relevant? Okay, let's, let's just take what I just said and apply it to this question. T let's take my example, right? I'm talking to my friend, I'm talking about my life, telling, uh, 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 telling, uh, them what I, what I'm experiencing. And so, um, as I am narrating my situation, there is a narrator or a thinker that is co-produced with the narration that I consider myself. It's I who is speaking. Also, I am talking about myself. Like, my narration is about myself. I have certain ideas about myself, and I'm voicing them right now. So if you now apply the practice and skill of disentangling sensation from thinking, and you really apply it, and you remove this whole level of thinking and interpretation from your momentary functioning, it's like in this moment when my, when my friend said, well, maybe it's just the intensity of your own life. It kind of shut me up. Okay, so it's removed, and then, because I have practiced this, I actually feel myself, I actually feel the intensity of my own life, as he called it, and then, and then that's all what's happening. I feel the intensity of my life. It's in my body. There's a certain kind of activation in the core of my body and in my heart. And I'm not thinking about it. What am I? I'm not the narration. I'm not the narrator, because I'm not doing that right now. So what am I? It's sort of like... Maybe this sounds like a theoretical problem, but it's like... Why are we so addicted to this thinking process? Why do we need it so much? Well, because it's like the reassurance of telling myself what I am and, and what I think about things and what other people are. And, and, and here I am doing that. It's changing all the time. I'm telling different stories to different people at all times. But the consistency is there that that's the way I have myself. If you remove that, what's left? Um, I've mentioned this many times now in the recent talks, but I can't get over it. <clears throat> Suzuki Rashi said that you are aware. No, no, no. The awareness that you are here right now is the ultimate fact. 
I'm not sure that you there, the, the awareness that you are here right now is the ultimate fact. Maybe I, I'll just for this talk, I modify this, modifies this phrase and say, this awareness here now is the ultimate fact. Okay, so, you know, we can play with trees and we can play with our own intensity or we can play with a stick, which is, an, you know, a usual thing to do for a Zen talk, you know, play with a stick because this is what's in my hand. <laughs> and so if I ask you to put your attention on this stick, then the stick is what appears in your in your mind. It appears as that which is focused for you at this moment. You are just do it, you know, just put your, it's nothing bad will happen. Um, just put, <laughs> put your attention on there and it's like, okay, so there it is. This is appearing. This thing that we call a stick. Well, we take, take the label away and then maybe you see the grain of the wood and the shape of the thing and, so that there it is. And then if I ask you to keep your attention there on this spot and I take the stick away, then what are you what are you aware of? Well, you could say now you're aware of your own attention, which is focused on this spot, but there's no object there. And when the object reappears, then there's an object. Then then that's what appears. We can, as I'm doing right now, we can separate two aspects of our experience. The object of our experience, that can be the stick or it can be the intensity in your body. And the attention through which it appears. <laughs> so Tsukiroshi says something like, this attention, he calls it awareness, and I'm going to get there. This awareness is the ultimate fact. Hmm. In this room that you can let your attention wander through, in this room... There is no tangible evidence of your attentional presence. You follow me? It's like it's hidden. Everything that appears, appears through that attentional presence of yours. If you just as a thought experiment remove that attentional presence... Nothing appears. That's like when you're unconscious or when you're in uh, non-dreaming deep sleep. It's like nothing appears. But in your waking life and your dreaming life too, what appears, appears through this attentional presence. And there is an invitation in 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 Buddhist practice, through the practice of meditation and mindfulness, there's an invitation to discover that which is hidden from your normal 
uh, perception of the ordinary world that you're in. It's like, it's sort of like you want to look behind the scenes, like in the, you know, under the hood of your mind. Hmm, how's this car really working? Okay, oh, there's an engine. It's like, oh, lift the hood of your mind. It's like, oh, there's a tension. It's so ordinary, it's so normal that that intention is there. It's nothing special. Now, I, I've talked about this a lot, where you can begin to observe that, uh, that this attention can be focused, like, you know, on this object. It can also be wide. It's like if you look into this room, into this scene, and you focus on nothing in particular, then you have a kind of field-like attention, and then it can be focused, and then it could be field-like, or it could be focused. When it's focused, objects appear. Bell, person, flowers, stake. They're already carved out from, from a bigger field. So I think, you know, this is just ways that you can, we can use the words that, that language gives us, attention and awareness. I tend to use attention as that which is focused and awareness as that which is field-like. So let's go back to this idea. The, the awareness that you are here right now is the ultimate fact. Awareness is, at least that's how Zuzukiroshi is treating it, is the ultimate fact. And he, strangely, you know, even though he's a Buddhist and the self doesn't exist, um, he's identifying this as you. You. The awareness that you are here right now is the ultimate fact. There is something so fundamental about discovering our own field of awareness as ourselves. This is more fully, this is more fully I than this story that I'm telling or the complaint that I have right now or what I think about myself, what my values are, where I'm coming from. All these things may be very interesting, but they are, they, they always require that I'm going to Make another attempt of making sense of this. <laughs> do you, do you, do you see what I'm saying? It's like, it's not like I just have to tell the story once. No, all the time I have to like create a new kind of certainty of myself, how it really is. This is why this is such an endless project. And there's this direct line to, once you've discovered it, there's this direct line to the field of awareness because it's just there at all times. It's so intimate. Through it, the world appears. I think it's a little much to call it even me or you or self. You know, it's even a little much. It's just like, it's so super mysterious. It's this awareness that is there. There's, 
There's nothing you can do about it. There's just this this uh, recognition of it. And I, uh, we could speak about this as an, as the awareness of awareness. When you are, when you become aware of your awareness, it's like there's a new intimacy with yourself. And then there's also an intimacy with the world because you recognize that what appears appears through that awareness. So if you want to be philosophical about it, then you have to say, it's like the world and I are not separate. Because the world appears through that intimate awareness, which I'm now recognizing as myself. So then it becomes very spiritual. But I'm making fun of that a little bit because there is, you know, if we uh, supercharge it with the very spiritual, then it's almost like, you know, there's some grasping going on about it. Like, I want that insight or that enlightenment. Or, but if you, uh, if you treat it more as a very practice oriented discovery process, it's like, Maybe there's just a certain kind of relaxation at first. It's like we sometimes we need sashin or something like where we feel this intense struggle of pain and narration in our mind and it's all tight. And then when you finally f- mysteriously find a way to you know, release that, it's like it's just this relaxation of, oh, I, I can just be here can allow this intensity, I can allow this pain. I don't have to find fault with myself or with other people around me. So then it's actually very, uh, very impactful. So I'm speaking about it as something really ordinary and normal. But now, to close here, it's like there is a practical path. There is um, there is your decision to practice regularly, to disentangle sensation from thinking, to create stability in being with the sensations as they appear and not wishing them to be different than they are. You can do that in the realm of seeing and hearing, and you can do it in the realm of proprioceptive intensity, which is what you, what really bothers you. You can experiment in all these realms, and but probably what's most important is that proprioceptive realm. But it's not like the other ones are more uh, less important. It, you know, 
the the joys and satisfaction of a sensorially engaged life come from that. Just, you know, being like if you're on vacation and you're thinking about everything that's wrong with your job and, you know, how you don't and your the problems in your marriage and all that, you know, it's not much of a vacation, but if you can actually feel the sun and the wind and the um, ground under your feet, and then it can be a vacation. But then you could say, then you can be on vacation all the time. <laughs> so there are these satisfactions, and then there is this really skillful way of dealing with suffering of of resisting certain kinds of intensities and then letting go of that resistance and become intimate with the intensity as your own and as something that with which nothing is wrong or something that you have to um uh, attribute to uh your self-worth or something And then just this, just this ability to stay with what is, is, I think can take years. Now, in those years, there'll be flashes where you feel like, well, I really got this. Then you will feel with certain intensities, man, it's not stable at all in this regard. And then you, you, you try to bring it there and you fail. And, and so it's, it's like this process of, Yes, understanding and understanding what this is about on some level and on another level, always feeling like you're falling short, like, yeah, but, you know, I'm not really good enough at this. So, but notice that that kind of thinking is thinking and it is self-referential. It is making a judgment about the quality of your practice. When that arises, return to just doing the practice, which is going back to sensation. By keeping, by, by giving your permission to just keep doing it, the stability will build. Maybe not in some absolute way, which is not, this is not something I aspire to actually. <clears throat> just continue to be on the path with it. But also don't say like, well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it sort of works for me. I don't have to make an extra effort here. No, no. Being intimate with suffering means the layers of your suffering will reveal themselves in more and more subtlety. So, you know, you just keep going, keep going, keep going. Well, when there is some measure of stability, I think almost naturally, this shift to a kind of wider awareness, an awareness of this awareness and a, and a dawning of there's a different way to, yeah, just have no, to be myself. Don't know how to say it, to be myself, a different way of being yourself than this narrating self.
I don't know. If you have a glimpse of this, you know, maybe there's just what's needed is some kind of willingness to shift into it. Like just. It can feel like you're not dealing with the problems of your life. <laughs> even though it's so, even though it's so bothersome, you know, to keep rehashing some issues that you have and like, at least it feels like you're doing something about it, even though it doesn't really work much. It's like, because it engages your mind, you feel like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with this. This is like, if you just go to this ultimate fact of your awareness, it's like, maybe it feels like you're just sidestepping your issues. And you might. Anyway, that's getting too complicated. <laughs> this is my experience. You have to see... Uh, how it is for you, but in this awareness, which is the ultimate fact, there is a sense of um, aliveness and joy of being alive, or you could say present, for no other reason than being alive. It's like, whoa! No, it's actually not that traumatic. Like I'd like to say, it's just a, it's just a quarter smile joy. Just this intimacy with yourself and the world. Hmm. You no, know, there are fancy ideas like unconditional freedom or it's unconditional because that ultimate fact, this awareness, is always accessible to us. Because it's always there. It's not depending on some special achievement or story that we have to tell, because if you just look like straight ahead and widen it and notice that the world appears that way, it's, it's, it's right there. You know, that's why Zen people are right in front of your eyes. Right here now. Not in some mysterious way, but actually, actually, actually right here now. Thank you very much.